You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Looks like I'm missing my clicker, so if I can have somebody help me with that, run that down to me. That's back there anywhere. Ephesians chapter 4. And, uh, oh, there it is right here. We got it. Thank you, Jordan. Appreciate that. You stealing my clicker. (laughs) Trying to have control. All right, so, um, so we have had <clears throat> a wonderful past few weeks just swimming in deep, rich, dense theology in the book of Ephesians. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul describes how God has predestined us to be adopted as children into His family. Now, formerly, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were slaves to the devil, by nature, children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, has raised us up to new life, not only repairing the rupture between man and God, but also reconciling man to fellow man. As he took two people groups who hated one another and were estranged from one another, Jews and Gentiles, and from them he has created now one new race, one new family of adopted children in God's household called the church. And God did all of this through the sacrificial death of Jesus, which atones for our transgressions. His blood washing away our sins, redeeming us, and therefore defeating the one who held us in captivity, the prince of the power of the air, Paul calls him in Ephesians chapter 2, none other than the devil. And it's interesting, the thing that conventional wisdom would say is a horrible and senseless tragedy, namely the violent murder of Jesus Christ, instead turns into the very thing that saves the world and will pave the way to a restored universe, demonstrating that the wisdom of God is superior to the wisdom of this age. And this is why Paul, in chapter 3, tells us that uh, God's plan for the church is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This new humanity that God is building is signaling uh, to the satanic powers their defeat and humiliation and putting on display His wisdom. The, The evil that the satanic powers have done is being mended and repaired through the work of Christ. Which then brings us to chapter 4. I want you to glance down at chapter 4, and I want you to look at that first word in chapter 4. It's a very important word. What is that word? You're allowed to speak. What's the word? Therefore. Thank you. Somebody had courage. All right. Therefore. I know, it's, it's scary to speak out loud. Uh, therefore is an important transitional word in Ephesians. There's a shift that's about to happen. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul has been unfolding to us massive, mind-blowing theology. But now he's about to shift from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, from doctrine to practice, from the gospel explained to the gospel applied, because theology is useless unless it actually trickles down to impact everyday life. And so Paul's going to connect the weighty theology of chapters 1 through 3 to how it affects your life right now in chapters 4 through 6. And so, uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to discover the massive implications of what God has done, implications for our life and implications for this church. So, let's now see what the apostle has to say to us. Please stand with me now, out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our great and glorious God. We are in Ephesians 
chapter 4, starting at verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this, being carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you once again, as you have been doing consistently week after week, would you once again bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word and and may you work in a supernatural way to do the things that I cannot do, which is to impact hearts and change lives and stir up conviction and stir up affections and move the brothers and sisters in this congregation in the direction that you want them to move. Will you do that all through the power of your word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of y'all know that I'm a Lord of the Rings nut. You knew that when you saw the map of Middle Earth in my office. You know, most, most pastors probably have things that are more spiritual up there, like a map of the globe and all the places that the gospel needs to go to and unreached peoples. I've got, you know, Mordor and Gondor and, you know, all the mission efforts we need to, you know, undertake in Middle Earth. But anyway, um, I love that stuff. And, um, and there's a scene, one of my favorite scenes in that, in that movie trilogy is in the third movie, the, the Return of the King, and it's, it's, you've got one of the main heroes in the story, Aragorn. He's got royal blood in his veins. He's heir to the throne of Gondor, and yet he travels about not as a king, but he travels in disguise as a wandering ranger whose home is not in a palace, but it's in the wild. And his destiny is to lead the charge against the forces of evil, but he's very reluctant to fully embrace that role and use his power to fulfill that destiny. And as the movie approaches its climax and the forces of evil seem to be at their strongest, Aragorn is confronted by the elf lord, Elrond. Yes, you heard me say elf. I'm a nerd. I know it. And, and, and Elrond challenges him to quit hiding from who he is and fully embrace his calling. And one of my favorite lines in the whole movie is when Elrond says, says to him, put aside the ranger, become who you were born to be. And I just want to cheer every time I hear that. It's so powerful and it's, it's really inspiring and it's illustrative of the Christian life. The whole Christian life, experientially, is a life of becoming. You don't start out as a Christian perfect. You find that out in the first you know, 15 seconds of being a Christian probably. Instead, you're in this state of becoming something different than what you were while not being everything that you should be. It's a process of growing and maturing and learning, gaining increased victory over sin, more and more realizing who you are, embracing your new identity. And so Paul here urges the church in Ephesus And he urges Harbin's church to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to walk in accordance with all of the theological truths that we have learned in chapters 1 through 3. If you were to summarize chapters 4 through 6, you could say, you could put it this way. In light of what Ephesians 1 through 3 has revealed about your true identity and about what God has done for you in Christ, 
in light of all of that, put aside your old way of thinking, your old way of living, turn away from the path that you used to be on, instead become who you were born to be. Or, better yet, become who you were born again to be. There is a manner in which you're to walk. There's a destiny which you're to fulfill. There's a calling which you're to live out. And there's an identity that you are to embrace. Identity matters. And for the rest of the book of Ephesians, this is what Paul is going to focus on as he reveals to us what what the worthy walk or, or the worthy way of life looks like. And the first thing that he wants us to know is that we are to walk worthy together. Looks like all three of those are up there. Spoiler alert. I guess we can't fix that. Oh, well. You can fill in your little blanks on your bulletin now. You got all the answers. Congratulations. We're to walk worthy together. We're to walk worthy together. I'm not going to belabor this first point a whole lot, but I I do want to spend a little bit of time on it. He says in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Notice that Paul says, I urge you. I urge you to walk in this way. That you is plural in the Greek. Uh, He's he's saying, I urge you all. Or if Paul were writing in Southern, he'd say, I urge y'all. Urge y'all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. The worthy Christian walk is meant to be walked in the context of a local Christian congregation. And if you read the rest of chapter 4, and really you read all of the letters in the New Testament, you discover that you really can't obey the Scriptures to the fullest, detached from being committed to life in a local church. You can't walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called when you're walking solo, which is why you will never see a mature, strong, powerful Christian that is thriving. You'll never see somebody like that who at the same time is rebellious to the notion of being attached to and committed to a local church, a local congregation. Now, Paul now tells us next what this walk is to look like. And I can imagine the people in the church in Ephesus hearing this read for the first time, and they're on the edge of their seats. Paul's going to tell us how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It's going to be big. And I wonder if some folks were surprised and even disappointed when Paul turns to the Ephesian church and he turns to us, and he exhorts us in verse 2 to walk with all humility and gentleness and patience and love. His focus here is not the walk of the church in relationship with the world, but the walk of the church in relationship with one another, which leads to my, I don't need to flip that, it's already up there, which leads to my second point, (laughs) that the church is to walk worthy in our relationships in the church. Now, why does Paul start here? To some, this might come across as very boring and unexciting and anticlimactic. I don't know about you, but I would have expected Paul to say something like, Work, walk in a manner worthy of your calling by doing great deeds for Christ. By going out and preaching the gospel and laying down your life on the mission field, by caring for the poor, by just impacting the globe for Jesus. I'd expect a, Paul to say there is a lost and dying world out there Go get them, church. Walk worthy. Now, we know that the church is indeed supposed to preach the gospel and be on mission around the world and and care for the poor and do all kinds of big things out there in the world for Jesus, but it's interesting that Paul doesn't start that way. Instead, he turns to the church 
And he says that the worthy walk begins by being humble and gentle and patient and lovingly bearing with one another. This to Paul is of the utmost priority. And this way of life is the the natural outflow of the theology of chapters 1 through 3 that has taught the Ephesians that Christ has reconciled them. He has taken blood enemies and he's made them not just friends, but brothers. But here's the thing. If the church at Ephesus turns around and starts warring with one another and not being patient and gentle and humble and loving towards one another and dissolving into disunity, then the lingering question is, did the great things that Ephesians 1 through 3 describe actually happen? Did God really do this? Is the gospel really true? And do do the people in this church really believe it? And going back to Ephesians 3.10, is God really wise? Remember, folks, we have a world and a universe that is watching the church. We have rulers and authorities in the heavenly places peering down at us, a people through whom God's wisdom is supposed to be displayed. And so are we as a church displaying God's wisdom and how we live together as a congregation, as his people? Are we living out verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 4? And so there is much more at stake in regards to how the members of a local church treat one another than most Christians realize, which is why Paul always got so angry when he saw those old hostilities and prejudices and lovelessness between Jews and Gentiles creeping up again. For example, turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. It's really easy to find, and it's it's just one book back. It's just the book before Ephesians. Galatians chapter 2. I can't always put the scriptures up on the screen for you. Sometimes I've got to make you work for it. And it helps us to learn our way around the Bible. Galatians chapter 2. And in Galatians 2, Paul describes an incident where he had to confront the apostle Peter uh, over, over this, this very issue, uh, the, the uh, Jew-Gentile relations. And Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 11, but when Cephas, and that's another, another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Now that's good, right? Peter is a Jew, he's eating with the Gentiles. That's a big deal. Your typical first century religious Jew would never in a million years ever consider for a second sitting at a table and breaking bread with a Gentile. Gentiles were dogs. Gentiles were scum of the earth. Gentiles likewise had a bad attitude towards the Jews. The feeling was mutual. And here is Peter now actually having a meal with Gentile Christians, and the breaking of bread together signifies a sense of love and kinship and peace and unity. So Peter here is starting out awesome. He's walking in a manner worthy of the calling. He's living according to his theology. He's demonstrating the gospel to be true. A gospel that announces that in Christ, God is building a family for himself from people of all races. And so this meal here that they're having together is a testimony to the reality of that gospel. Good on you, Peter. But, second half of verse 12. But when they came, these men from James, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. Now, the circumcision party were Jews who wanted to force Gentiles to live like Jews. They essentially said that belief in Jesus is good, but not good enough. 
You got to add some things to Jesus. You got to follow Jewish laws. You got to eat Jewish foods. You got to be circumcised like a Jew. And then God will accept you. Well, evidently, Peter was intimidated by these Jews. He was embarrassed by his association with the Gentiles. One moment he's breaking bread with them and he's enjoying fellowship with them and the next moment he abruptly excuses himself in such a hurry, probably knocking over chairs that are in his way as he's trying to get to the other side of the room as soon as he can so he won't be seen with them. And you can only imagine how confused and hurt those Gentiles must have felt in that moment. But the problem didn't stop there. Paul goes on to say in verse 13 that the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Did you catch why this was such a big deal to Paul? Why this made him so mad? Why he got upset? He said in verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The reason why Peter was not living in step with the truth of the gospel is because the gospel is saying one thing, but Peter by his actions are saying the exact opposite. He was at first hanging out with the Gentiles and fellowshipping with them and eating with them and accepting them as brothers. But when the circumcision party arrived, Peter's fear of man outweighed his love for the gospel and for these Gentile brothers. It, it outweighed his confidence in the great truths of Ephesians 1 through 3. And as a result, he disassociated himself from the Gentiles. Now, so how Peter was treating those other Christians in that moment was anti-gospel. It was essentially preaching a different gospel. Not that Peter wasn't a Christian anymore, but instead, in a moment of weakness, his theology became disconnected from his practice. And when those, when those things become disconnected, guess what happened? He began to walk in a manner not worthy of his calling. Instead, he was living in a manner that was casting a shadow of doubt on the veracity of the gospel and on the reality of God's reconciling power, unintentionally communicating that this gospel is not really true. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. There is a way to live that is worthy of the calling that we have been called to, and there is a way to live that is not in step with the gospel. Uh, there's a way to live that even lies about the gospel and lies about Jesus, the, the, the Christ whom we claim to represent and who we are supposed to image. And so the question for Harbin's church this morning is, are we living in step with the gospel? We, us, here, right here at Harbin's church in this room, we have to be very careful with how we treat one another and how we interact with one another. We don't realize how serious this is. I mean, when we think about serious sins, what do we tend to think about? We think of murder, adultery, stealing. But we don't realize the utter wickedness and destructive nature of other sins that churches are much quicker to tolerate and turn a blind eye to and even laugh about. And it could be really tempting to look at Paul's exhortations here in verse 2 and, and treat them lightly. For example, patience. He, Paul talks about patience. 
we, we may not be patient with someone in this room, and we may just brush it off and say, well, well you don't know how many times that person has rubbed me the wrong way, so, so I'm, I'm just, I'm done. We may not be gentle with somebody in this church. You know, some Christians are like a bull in a china shop. I wonder if that describes some of y'all. And, and, and we may just laugh it off and say, oh, that's just how I am. You, you know me, you're just going to have to deal with that. I just tell it like it is. Forget about the collateral damage that you caused and, and hurt feelings and confusion. We may not be loving towards someone in this church, and we'll excuse that and we'll say, well, well frankly, they aren't lovable. I'm just tired of reaching out. Every time I reach out, it just never goes well in the end. So I'm just going to withdraw from that person. And all the while, we don't realize how anti-gospel and anti-Christ that kind of behavior is. It's not worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And it runs counter to the truths of Ephesians 1 through 3 that says that God has reconciled us into one new family, that the dividing walls of hostility have been torn down and enemies have become friends. Not only is it not worthy of the calling, but it's massively hypocritical and paints a distorted image of the Christ that you are to represent. Because everything that these verses are calling you to do mirrors exactly how Christ has treated you. Paul says, walk with all humility towards one another. Well, who has treated us with humility? Who has humbled himself for us, the church? In Philippians 2, we read that Jesus, though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You wouldn't even be saved today if it wasn't for Christ's humility towards you. Paul says, be gentle with one another. Well, who has been gentle with us? Though we were rebels and sinners who deserved to be consumed by God's fiery wrath, who has come to us and has treated us instead with the tenderness that a shepherd has towards his sheep? Jesus says, come to me all who labor, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. Paul says, be patient with one another. Who has been patient with us, though we have sinned over and over and over and over again? And yet the Scriptures say God is slow to anger, and that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And you know what? He will do that for you for the rest of your life, no matter how many times you offend Him and confess your sins to Him. Christ is patient with you and bearing with you in love every hour. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, know that the kindness and patience of God is meant to lead sinners to repentance. And for you, the worthy walk begins by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, turning away from your sins to follow Him, accepting His death on the cross as payment for your sins. And if you receive Him, you can know that you are His child. And if you're receiving Christ for the first time, I would love to to speak with you more after the service about this, or any other Christian here would love to too, as we talk with you about life in the family of God and help you to begin walking the worthy walk together with us as part of God's people. Now, where Paul is ultimately pushing us towards is not just humility and gentleness and loving patience for the sake of those things. Uh, Those are a means towards a grand and glorious vision that Paul has 
for the life of the church, which is unity, which is the third point, that the church is to walk worthy by pursuing unity. Paul says in verse 3 that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, believers are already united in Christ. We learned that in chapter 2. But at the same time, we are to play an active role in maintaining that unity through how we treat one another in the local congregation. We are to eagerly play a part in going to that brother or that sister and treating them in a way that helps facilitate peace and unity in the church. As a matter of fact, the bond of peace between brothers has preeminence over your own personal worship time with God. Because again, true Christianity is not about flying solo as if it's just about you and Jesus. Instead, your life is to be lived in the context of, of, of community with the people of God. And so, Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's a great example of what it means to be eager to maintain unity and peace. Next verse, Jesus says, work it out quickly. And notice Jesus doesn't say, if you have something against someone, go to them. Jesus sets the bar higher. And he says that if you know your brother has something against you, don't be passive. Be be eager and active and go to him and make it right. I wonder how how many people go to church week after week after week, not just having something against their brother or sister in Christ, but knowing their brother or sister in Christ has something against them, and yet week after week after week, just sweeping it under the rug and never dealing with it and letting that disunity remain and fester and ultimately hurt the entire church. Because Paul says elsewhere that when one member of the body, the church, suffers, all members suffer. Now, being eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace isn't just making things right when something goes wrong between you and another member of this church. It also includes proactively showing love and care for others in the church before something goes wrong. Yesterday, I opened up my mailbox and was delighted to get a card of encouragement from the Salas family. There's no issues between me and the Salas family. Not not that I know of. (laughs) But guess what? That, that simple act of love solidifies and strengthens the unity and the peace between us. I got that card. I was immediately thinking about Ephesians 4 here. That, that, th- this, this kind of uh, uh, serving others in need of, uh, in this congregation, uh, praying for others in this church, refusing to unfairly judge a brother or sister, instinctively believing the best about other members of the church when there's a misunderstanding, overlooking minor offenses. All of these are examples of being eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. And and this worthy walk isn't optional. It's essential. Because when you received Christ as Savior and Lord, you just didn't get saved and get a ticket to heaven. You joined a family. And we share a closer bond than siblings who are merely sharing the same blood. We share the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's thicker than blood. And just that theological reality alone should transform the way we think about one another and treat one another. And so Paul challenges us to become who we were born again to be, to live in accordance with that. Don't treat other people in this room in a manner that tells lies about Christ and what He has done. 
Now, as a pastor, I sometimes hear from people uh, suggestions on what we need to do to make this church stronger and to glorify God more and become healthier, and I am always happy to hear all your ideas on Bible studies and programs and types of outreach and so on. But as we think about Harbin's church and our future and how this church can grow and be all that it was meant to be, we need to start exactly where Paul starts. We need to start with love and unity, because as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, a church, by the way, that was anything but united, Paul reminds them, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, Christians and churches can be busy doing a lot of good things and a lot of ministry. We can bless others and we can give up our possessions for God, and we can be executed on the mission field for our faith. But if we are loveless people, it gains us nothing. God's not pleased with us. And that's hard for a lot of us to accept because we are very much doers. We throw ourselves into ministry and into evangelism and into impacting the world for Jesus Christ, and love just seems kind of like an optional thing. I've seen people in churches give lip service to love while trampling and hurting their own brothers and sisters in Christ in the same congregation, fighting for their own way, consumed with their own preferences and ministries, and such a church might be a busy church, but I guarantee it'll be a weak and ineffective church. You see, if we get everything else right, if we get our doctrine right, and our ministries right, and our discipleship programs right, and our music right, but if we don't get the love thing right... If we're, sitting, if we're sitting around harboring resentment or a bad attitude towards that person or family sitting a couple of rows ahead of us or behind us, if we're making passive-aggressive comments to people in the church about things that we don't like in the church or, or, or about people that irritate us in the church, or we're grumbling and complaining about the leaders in the church, or if the leaders grumble and complain about the members, if, if we're unwilling to step out of our comfortable cliques and take risks to reach out to people in this church who we don't know well or or whom we are uncomfortable with who are different than us and, and we just instead hang out with the same five people in our church over and over again and no one is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, then Harbin's church will become a dead church. Now let me say this as your pastor. I am so pleased with you as a congregation. I really am. And so don't think that what I'm saying here is, is coming from a spirit that is critical towards my church. It's, it's not. As a matter of fact, I've been a part of Harbin's church from almost the very beginning. And I sense that this church is more unified than ever before. Uh, for the past year, year and a half, we, we have entered into a sweet season of incre- in- increasing wonderful peace among the brothers and sisters in this congregation God's really blessed us with that, and I don't take that for for granted for a minute because there are many congregations that are not enjoying what we enjoy, and there are deep cracks of disunity and factions and divisions that are threatening those churches. And I know that we're not perfect, and we have much room to grow. And I'll be honest with you, as your pastor and your shepherd, as one who is called by God to watch over this precious flock, to be on guard to protect you from spiritual danger... I have felt an increasing burden in my heart 
that we cannot rest on our laurels and just coast and take for granted the peace and unity that we presently enjoy as a church. But that times are coming in the future, and that may be just around the corner, or maybe six months, a year, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a prophet, I'm a pastor. And so as a pastor, as a shepherd, I'm just, I'm standing on the ridge, scanning the horizon, got the sheep here, and, I, and I'm, I'm standing between y'all, and I'm just looking for danger. That's, that's me, that's my job, and that's, that's my calling. And, and times are coming where we're going to be tested, and where we're going to be tempted. And, and the enemy is going to look for cracks and a way into this fellowship to disrupt what God is doing here and weaken us. And, and I'm grateful, I'm, I'm very grateful that we just happen to be, by the providence of God, here in Ephesians 4 this week, and that this is the word that God has for us this morning. And God wants to tell you to not take anything for granted here. Don't coast, don't grow complacent, or worse, arrogant. Be on guard, keep striving forward, keep seeking to grow, keep repenting of the things you need to repent of, keep caring about your fellow church members, keep praying for them, keep serving them, keep seeking to make things right, and keep seeking to show that you love them, make those bonds of, of peace and unity even stronger. For the sake of this church and for the sake of the glory of God, keep doing it. Because it is possible for a church to regress and fall. To the point where Jesus will set that church aside and he'll find another church to use. Because, guess what church didn't get the love thing right? Here's here's the irony here. One of the biggest ironies in the New Testament, the church in Ephesus. Can you believe that? And, And Paul knew this church was in danger of getting everything right except for love. And so Paul spent lots of time in Ephesians 1 through 3 laying down the theological foundations for the love and unity that they were to have. And, and he spends lots of time telling them practical ways and how to love one another in chapters 4 through 6. Later on in chapter 4, Paul reminds them to, yes, speak the truth, say what's right, embrace sound doctrine and good theology, but he says, speak the truth in love. You know who was one of the pastors of the Ephesian church? Timothy. And Paul shows the same concern about love when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Look at those qualities there that Paul wants Timothy to cultivate, kindness, which is an expression of love. He says, don't be quarrelsome, What's the opposite of that? Well, it's patiently long-suffering. And notice again, here, Paul emphasizes gentleness. Yes, correct your opponents, preach right doctrine, do it with gentleness. He's telling the pastor of the church to live in the same way that he exhorts the members of the whole church to do in Ephesians chapter 4. The Ephesian church got a lot of things right. But ironically, after all of the effort that Paul poured out on behalf of that church, something went very, very wrong. They started out as a loving church, but the very last time we hear about this church in the Bible is in the book of Revelation, and there we find that this church is in serious, serious trouble. Jesus says to them, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, 
but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for, for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. So this church got a lot right, didn't they? A lot right. They were a busy church. They were a hard-working church. They, they are enduring through difficult times. They're, they're, they're hanging in there. Jesus says they can't bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. In other words, they're, they're interested in the purity and in, 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 in doctrinal integrity of the church. They're very sensitive to false teachers, and they were able to expose them as charlatans and fakers and enemies of Jesus. Yet for all of those good things, Jesus has something against the church. He says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And some people wondered, well, does this mean that their love for Jesus has grown cold, or does it mean that their love for one another has grown cold? I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. Love for Jesus and love for your brothers are bound together. You can't truly love others unless you have a healthy love for Jesus. And you're not really loving Jesus if you don't love your brothers. And Jesus tells them, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. At first. You see, the church at first did have love. They took Paul's letter seriously. They weren't always cold. Right? They, they were doing the things that, that Paul talks about here in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 4. They were walking in humility, and, and they, they were gentle with one another, and they were patiently bearing with one another in love. But something happened as time went on. And they became like some churches today, busy for God, big on doctrine, big on truth, big on right preaching, big on exposing false doctrine, and yet they are as cold as ice. And none of the good things that they are doing will protect them from the discipline of Jesus. Because he says, repent, do the works you did at first, and if not, church of Ephesus, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Brothers and sisters, that is terrifying. This church is doing good things. They've got great doctrine. They're, they're preaching the, the true gospel. They go to all the right conferences. They're exposing false teachers. And Jesus is saying, nevertheless, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. In other words... I'm going to shut this church down. Brothers and sisters, that should be very, very sobering. And we should ask, well, what does that mean for Harbin's church? It means that we need to fall on our knees and repent of any lovelessness that we may have. It means we just can't rely on our good doctrine and our ministries and our outreach or any other good things that we might be doing. And it means that Jesus is so concerned for His glory he is so concerned that through the church, his wisdom will be put on display to the universe. He's so concerned about that, that he will shut down Harbin's church for the sake of his glory if we aren't walking in a manner worthy of the calling. And, and y'all, honestly, I pray that if we ever get away from humility and gentleness and patience and love and unity, that Jesus would shut us down and pass over us, find churches that are getting the love thing right, and he'll use them in mighty ways. Brothers and sisters, I don't want that to happen. I don't want Harbin's churches 
lampstand to be removed because we are a cold, dead, loveless church. I want Harbin's church to be passionate and alive and set ablaze with a burning love for God and one another, displaying his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and to a lost and dying world that needs to see the reality of the gospel that we preach lived out in our lives in this church, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday. You want to reach the world for Christ? You want to see souls saved and brought into this family? The mission begins not out there in the world, but right here in the church. Because Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for another, one for another. And Jesus also prayed that they may become perfectly one, that his church may become perfectly one. So why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So check it out. Our unity and our love has evangelistic implications. If it's true that people will know we are his disciples based on our love for one another, then the opposite is true. It will not be evident to the world that we're his disciples if we fail to love one another. I want you to examine yourself before the Lord. Not your neighbor, yourself. Don't, don't, don't start thinking about other people in this church who you, you, you think may be lacking love or lacking gentleness or lacking humility. You start doing that all the time, well, now you're working against the kind of thing that Paul is exhorting us to do in, in these first few verses. Don't, don't, don't think about them. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Where is your love lacking? And if you fail to be a facilitator of unity in this church, then ask God right now to expose that in you and show you how so that you may repent. This is, this is true for, for, for y'all believers who are, are kids as well. Like sometimes we talk about these big weighty things and uh, sometimes you teenagers, like I worry that you're, oh, that's just adult stuff. I don't need to think about that. Are you kidding me? The, the devil also creeps into churches by attacking the kids of the church and the teenagers of the church who are professing to be believers. Y'all, teenagers, kids, y'all are not, if you're believers, you're not exempt from Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. So take that to heart. Think about it. Pray about it. Talk with your parents about it. Because I don't want our lampstand to be removed. And I don't want us to tell lies about God and the gospel by how we treat one another in this church. Let's, let's, let's stop the lack of humility. Let, let's stop the lack of gentleness. Let's stop the lack of, of, of just impatience and not bearing with one another. You know, sometimes people act like, well, if only, if only my church, I, I hear people talk about this, go to all different kinds of churches, if only my church was just, we were just more of a loving church, we were just more like that first century church, then, then everything would be all right in, in, in our congregation, as if that's some kind of utopia. And I'm thinking, y- y'all have never read the New Testament closely enough and, and, and to see the messiness that's going on in those churches. You know, Paul, Paul said, bear with one another in love. He, he wrote that to a first century church. And, and he wrote it for a reason. Why, why do you think Paul writes, bear with one another in love? Because he knows people in the church in Ephesus are going to irritate one another. And are going to rub one another the wrong way. 
and relationships are going to be awkward and sometimes messy and, and not everything that people would hope them to be. And what does Paul say? Does Paul say, quit, quit that church, cut and run, and go down to Second Baptist Church of Ephesus and try there? No. He says, bear with one another in love. If you have something against someone in this church or if they have something against you, you need to go to them before you leave this building. Oh, can I challenge you to do that? You're like, oh man, that's really scary. Well, maybe, but it's biblical. And God will help you to do it as you're seeking to honor Him. Play, play your part in making this church stronger and having a sense of greater uh, unity because whatever disunity you might be having with someone else in this congregation, you might think it's just between them and you. It's not. It's affecting the entire body. It's affecting the entire body. Make it right. Make it right. I want you to seek God this morning and ask Him to help you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called. So let's now together as a family move forward in this unity together. And let us now bow our heads and close our eyes and seek God's help. And let's ask Him to help us become who we were born again to be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your holy, precious, and inspired word. Thank you for the good word. Thank you for a hard word, I'm sure, for some of us. And Father, I pray that even now you would be working in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here, softening hearts, exposing sin, revealing blind spots. For the good of this church and for the glory of your name. Help us to be sensitive and open and receptive to what the Spirit is going to do in us in these next few minutes and hours and days as we reflect on Ephesians 4. Father, I thank you for the work that you've already done in this congregation over the past several years. I thank you for the the sense of, of unity and peace and love that we already enjoy in this congregation. And I pray, we pray, that you would protect us from regressing. We, we don't want to be like the Ephesian church that goes backwards. We want to move forward, and we want to better put on display your wisdom to the cosmos, starting with how the members of this church interact with one another. Not, not, not so folks can look at Harbin's Church and, and talk about, oh, how awesome Harbin's Church is. That, that's not the point. The point is, is that I want anyone to observe us, to look at us and say how awesome the God of Harbin's Church is. Amen. He's awesome. He's incredible. He does supernatural things. And I want some of that. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.